And so now, Lord, indeed, we ask, um, would you come right now into this room? Would you empower us right now as we look into your holy scriptures, as we read about the newborn baby church? Lord, would you give us eyes to see your hand at work in the world and your hand at work within us, transforming us into your likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. We give you thanks and praise for your work for us in Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, strengthen us as we face whatever it is we face today and this week um, because of what you've done for us in him, because of your mercy extended to us through his cross. So we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, looking back to uh, not just last week, but the last few weeks, we've been looking at the first few chapters in the Acts of the Apostles, and, um, and I want us to remember together some of the things that we've heard about. Um, I'm even going to go back to the very beginning, because I know we have some people who are just joining us, so I'm just going to do a little recap. Um, this, these are the cliff notes. If you missed the last few weeks, this is what we've been looking at. Um, does anybody remember what I said about Luke, the author, and the two books that he wrote? What are the two books of the Bible that Luke, the, our author, wrote? He did do a lot of research. That's right. He said, I compiled an orderly account. I listened to everyone's story, all of the testimonies. Okay. He was there. We're not sure if he, he, was, he was there with Paul. And that's what we remember, right? When he starts to talk about Paul and the missionary journeys, he says, we, which is really cool because then you get the sense like he was there and he is compiling an account and he spent so much time with Paul and with others. I don't know if he was there during Jesus' lifetime or not. I, I think the jury's still out on that one. We'll have to ask the Lord when we, or we'll have to ask Luke when we see him in heaven and say, were you there? Were you there during this and this and this? Or were you interviewing and getting the eyewitness testimony of those who were there? Either way, it's very close. It's a very reliable witness to who Jesus is and what he has done for us and then to what was going on in the first church. And so these two volumes, volume one, remember, is the gospel according to St. Luke. Volume two is the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Both are written by the same author, by Luke, and they overlap in that they both contain one event. At the end of Luke, we see the ascension of Jesus. Up, up, and away. Going, going, gone. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, we see the same event. Luke is telling us this about this same event twice because they over, it's the overlap between volume 1 and volume 2. Um, and essentially, volume 1 shows us the person and work of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Volume 2 even though it's the Acts of the Apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke is in some ways saying, this is the work of Jesus Christ in his bodily absence. Because where is Jesus? Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so from the right hand of the Father, he has all, all authority over heaven and earth, and he sends the promised gift of the Holy Spirit upon the Apostles upon all those who believe in Jesus. And that's what we saw in chapter 2 of Acts, right? That first amazing sign and wonder, which was Pentecost, a once-and-for-all event um, that is not just a once-and-for-all event in the life of the churches, of the church um, throughout time and space. That one event, that one outpouring of the Spirit, yeah, come on in, um, once-and-for-all meant that the Holy Spirit is now available, not just to the prophets, priests, and kings, 
to whom the Holy Spirit was available in the Old Testament. But through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is available to all believers in Jesus, no matter our um, gender, no matter our socioeconomic status, no matter our ethnicity. Right? So that universality, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all Christians. And so for us as Christians, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event upon our conversion, upon our belief in Jesus, um, but, it ha- but we can ask for renewal. Because remember, the language used of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was language of analogy. Um, Luke was telling us that they sat in the house, in the house where they were, they were sitting, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues, like tongues of fire, sat on their heads, and then tongues came out of their mouths. Different languages came out of their mouths. We hear this language of analogy, that the Holy Spirit is um, God himself made manifest in the midst of his creation. And the language is the language of theophany, that language of the revelation of God's own presence in the midst of humanity. And we see in um, the Old Testament prophets that the language of theophany is the language of analogy because words cannot describe the majesty of God. Words cannot describe um, his power, his holiness, um, because he is outside of the categories that we have. As created beings, he, the creator, is far outside even our own ability to grasp him. And so what you see is that Luke and those first apostles are trying to understand what's going on, and they're saying, well, the Holy Spirit was like wind, like fire, like water being poured down on us, like a torrential deluge, um, but, but totally different than us, totally other than created humanity, totally other than these created terms that we're using. You know, fire, water, um, wind are aspects of creation, um, and yet they're used to try to somehow uh, illuminate what the Holy Spirit was like in their midst. Any questions about that as we look as I just sort of give you a little overview of chapters 2 and 3 and 4, finishing up with that. The Holy Spirit descends in power and great might. They start to speak in these tongues, um, languages that the people in the crowds knew, their heart language, the language of their native tongue. Um, They would all have spoken probably Greek if they were Jews from around the Greek world, around the Mediterranean basin. Um, But the, the language that they hear the apostles speaking in, those languages are the languages that their mother spoke to them over their cribs. They're the first language they ever learned. And so all of these different languages are represented there so that each one of these people groups can hear the good news in their mother tongue. They get to hear the good news in their heart language, in the language that they most understand. That's one of God's gracious gifts to us, is that he extends himself to us. He extends himself to us in Jesus through Jesus' incarnation, and he extends himself to us through the Holy Spirit, who comes um, and dwells within us through faith. So what happens after this is that um, Peter gets up and starts to explain what's happening to the crowd there in Jerusalem, because they think that everyone's drunk. Right, And he explains, and as he explains, he explains what happens in light of Jesus. He's saying, you see this right here, but this is really, this miracle that you see in your midst is a sign pointing to Jesus. So fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. This Jesus, whom you crucified only 50 days earlier, 
might very well have been the same crowd or a similar enough crowd that there were people that were physically there who said, crucify him, crucify him. And then they're there hearing the good news in their own language, hearing about Jesus. And so Peter is going to clarify, this is about Jesus. And then he goes on to say how it's about Jesus and how all the Old Testament prophecies lead up to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who was crucified and raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now reigns. Um, So he does this following Pentecost, and many believe. And then they're praying. Remember that at the end of chapter 2, we had some discussion about what the first church was like. By the power of the Holy Spirit, there were these miracles that were supernatural wonders that everyone could see. But there were also miracles in the hearts of those first believers. They were made more holy than they were on their own. Um, they were, their hearts were transformed in such a way um, that they were able to be far more generous and kind to each other than they could in their own strength. And Luke gives us a great description of what this looks like many times over. The language of unity is um, all throughout the book of Acts. So if, you're, if you have your Bible opened, you just turn back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And looking at verse 42 especially, but also 42 through 47, let's just review those attributes of the first church that we talked about a few weeks ago. What were some of the things that characterized this first church? Fellowship. Fellowship. Breaking of bread. Yes, breaking of bread. Uh, Teaching, teaching. Well, this praying. Yes. Okay, you're going. You guys are so good. You're going too fast. Okay, I missed one. Fellowship, bread broken, teaching, praying. What? There was one more too. Glad. Someone said. Glad and sincere hearts. Thank you, Barbara. Oh, this marker. This one too. I know. I do you know. I tell them all the time. I'm like, I want 20 markers that work. <laughs> do, do what you do is get them and you put them in your pocket. I know. And carry them around in my purse so that yeah. no one else can. There we go. Purple. Glad and sincere hearts. What else? Sharing. The sharing, Gordon, goes along with fellowship. I'm going to hint. I'm going to talk about that more in a little bit. Um, not only remember, not only did it say the bread broken in prayers. But it was the bread broken and the prayers, which suggests with the definite article that we're talking about something more official than just someone's private devotions or fellowship in people's homes. This is alluding to probably a very early form of the Lord's Supper. Obedience to the Lord's command, do this in remembrance of me. And then the prayers, we see at the beginning of chapter 3 that Peter and John are in the temple at the hour of prayer. And the hour of prayer was a specific time when the people of Israel would gather in the temple to pray following the evening sacrifice. So it was a set time every day. So this is um, not just kind of a lot of, a lot of very free-form churches will say this was spontaneous prayer in their midst, and they probably had that. This is liturgical prayer like what we good Anglicans, Episcopalians do on Sunday morning. This is liturgical prayer. Okay, what else? First of all, glad and sincere hearts, that alone is a miracle. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
you can't change. We, it's so hard to change our outlook on life, isn't it? If you're having a bad day, it's so hard for it to be totally transformed. When you draw into fellowship with other Yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the gifts of being together as a part of the body of Christ together is that um, we're, you know, Augustine described that sin being curved in upon ourselves and having a gloomy day. um, You start to get like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing will go well. (laughs) And getting around other people can really help get us out of that rut of doom and gloom. so, what else? In a very genuine way. I, I'm very resistant to superficial gaiety. All of this, you know, oh, there, there, it'll be okay. No. No, it's not it's okay. It's not okay. <laughs> Only Jesus makes it okay. So, <laughs> what else? Evangelism. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah. And how do we, good memory. Lynn, where do we see the evangelism? In multiplying their numbers. Yeah. They're bold. So and they and we see in chapter three and chapter four they act for more boldness. But and as they're bold, it's the Holy Spirit that makes them bold and gives them the words to say, just as Jesus promised in the gospels, that they would have that the Holy Spirit would give them the words to say when they're before the authority and then also in front of the crowds, but they also um, it's the Lord that adds their number. Supernatural um, spiritual fruit. Um, remember that spiritual fruit, I like to think of spiritual fruit being both um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control in our own hearts, um, just like in Galatians, but it's also multiplication. Spiritual fruit um, is that fruit that comes about when um, the Lord uses us, works through us um, to bear witness to his glory and his love. And someone else says, I want some of that. I want some Holy Spirit. I want some of God in my life. I want more of God in my life. I want to know more about this man, Jesus, who's also the Son of God. That um, when others around us kind of incline and um, desire to know more about God and desire to be in relationship with God, that's spiritual fruit. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's God's work. Thank you, Lynn. What else? You guess they felt so guilty <laughs> that they were the ones that that's crucified. Yeah. Just, just think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, opposite of what they're feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Awesome, it was truly. It really was. And that's one of the first, one of the first aspects of the Holy Spirit's work is, I like to think of the Holy Spirit, you know, remember all this language of liquid and it's like a downpour, like the Holy Spirit, he's like fire, like this, like that. I like to think of the Holy Spirit as this liquid love of God, grace made manifest tangibly in a spiritual, tangible way in our midst, almost like the blood of Jesus poured out upon us. You know, I love those gospel hymns, oh, the blood. You know, there was um, a very cheesy gospel um, musical that we did when I was in college, and I wasn't in it because I can't sing, but I was the master carpenter, so I, cre- I built the whole set. And I could have gone every <coughs> night to hear them sing. And in some ways it was tongue-in-cheek, um, talking with the way they were singing about these, um, these old gospel hymns. It was this family that was a traveling troupe of gospel singers. 
But the thing was, all of my friends who were acting in the play were real bona fide Christians. And so when they were singing these gospel songs, they were really meaning it. And for me, during that period of my life, that was so much more worshipful than the praise songs that we were singing in chapel in my Christian college because I felt so distant from that and I wasn't sure if the people really meant it. It felt like a show, whereas the actual theatrical show felt like the real thing. And so one of the, um, one of the, songs, is a, one of the songs is a blood medley about the blood of Jesus. So just praise, praise God for um, the blood of Jesus poured out upon us that makes us white as snow. And that's the language of Revelation when um, John asked the angel, who are these? And the multitude of saints, about the multitude of saints, the angel says, these are those whose robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. I don't know about you, but I do a lot of laundry and that is a miracle. That is a laundry miracle that the robes of the saints are made white in the red blood of the Lamb. <laughs> There's this cleansing power um, to the blood of Jesus, and we see that in um, the atonement from the cross, that it's the blood of lambs that made the Israelites clean for a time, and in a way only because they pointed forward to um, the Lamb who was slain for the world. Um, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews talks about Jesus entering into the places in the heavenly realm, into the Holy of Holies in heaven, and paving the way for our entrance into relationship with the Holy God through his own atoning sacrifice, through his own blood. Okay, how did I get on the blood of Jesus? Well, that repentance, as you talked about, Mary Kay, um, these, the crowd is cut to the heart. And they say, what must we do? Peter says, repent. And whenever, whenever someone repents, as Jesus said, you know, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. That this, these thousands are repenting, repenting of sin, repenting of the rejection of Jesus that led to his death. And they're affirming their faith in Jesus, affirming that he is who God says he is. And um, through that gift of repentance, again, I think that's a gift of God to be able to repent. And that's the, it was almost like the first work of the Holy Spirit, I would venture to say. Um, and so after that repentance, then they're filled. As they're emptied of guilt and emptied of sin, the Holy Spirit fills them and, um, and empowers them to do um, miracles and to have this love and unity in their midst that's truly from God. Um, whenever two or three are together, I like to say the Holy Spirit is there, and also whenever two or three are together, there's going to be a difference of opinion, I find. Think about your husband's or your closest friend or your closest relationship. Probably, there's probably, you probably don't agree on, on everything 100%, do you? And what do you do when you, <laughs> that would be an impossibility. You are two different people with different thoughts different opinions, different ideas. And the miracle that the Lord accomplishes in the midst of the church is that all of these different people were unified. Um, the language used throughout Acts is that they were all together with one accord. Um, they were um, one. And then we're going to see another great phrase to just talk about this oneness and this unity. And so this unity within this newborn baby church 
is something that's going to be carried throughout Acts as people of other ethnicities besides just the Jewish people are brought into the church of God, um, brought into, um, through faith in Jesus Christ, brought into the body of Christ. But this miracle of unity results in and is characterized by this fellowship. And do you remember the word that we talked about for this fellowship? Yeah, I'm writing it in the Greek. Sorry, that's not helpful. In the Greek, ends look, look like these. So koinonia. Um, and this koinonia fellowship is described in both a horizontal and a vertical way. In the vertical way, this koinonia <laughs> fellowship is something that all Christians share in with God the Father through Jesus Christ. We have, um, the way has been made for us back into relationship with God. God gives us so generously of himself. He gives to us out of his own greatness. Um, and Jesus empties himself of all divinity. He goes down to be born as a baby. Um, as it says in Philippians 2, he descends, he goes low on our behalf. He humbles himself. Um, what a sacrifice of his own self, all of his greatness, even of his divinity for a time to be made flesh and then to carry our flesh um, and human flesh back into heaven. He ascends into heaven and is exalted. But in his um, emptying of himself, his going low, he's demonstrating this quality within God's own character of self-sacrifice and mercy. Um, and that um, self-giving, that generosity within God's own character is made manifest to us in Jesus. So that giving, that fellowship, is a fellowship that God has with us. And that's the first way that you see the New Testament using this term, talking about God's koinonia with us, that he gives himself without reserve to us. Thanks be to God, right? And it's out of that having received um, from God through Jesus that we have this abundance. Our hearts overflow with gladness and sincerity. We're... Um, so glad that we then give out of that abundance to others. And we give in many ways in a horizontal way. We um, can give to each other generously from our hearts with a word of kindness, with um, an act of kindness, um, with um, a real perception of the, the fact that someone's going through something. Well, I can lend a listening ear. I have 20 minutes. I can listen to this person. My, I can't help them solve it but I can listen. Um, that glad and generous giving horizontally comes from that vertical giving of God to us. And it's a w this is that kind of fellowship that's so much more than coffee hour fellowship. We're not talking small talk here. We're talking self-sacrificial love um, for each other within the body of Christ. And so this heart sharing and this heart fellowship, fellowship um, in that uh, unseen way, in an intangible way, was also manifested in the church by a sharing that was um, generous materially. And we see this generosity um, hinted at in chapter 2, and we're going to see it again. It's hinted at also in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, which we're going to read um, today. So the generosity is there. Um, the other thing is that there are signs and wonders being performed. And these signs and wonders cause many to believe. The first sign and wonder was the Pentecost, and then we also saw the healing of the lame man in chapter 3. We're going to see more signs and wonders. And again, remember that the miracles are also the miracles of the transformation of the human heart. Um, and the transformation of Peter from a cowering, fearful man to a bold apostle. 
proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we turn to chapter 4, let's turn to chapter 4. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 32. This um, sign and wonder was also manifest in the fact that um, the leaders of the Jewish people, remember that last week we saw that they had arrested Peter and John for having um, healed this man, for the Lord having healed this man in the temple. And um, Peter is so bold that he says, you can tell us not to um, preach in Jesus' name, but we're still going to because we're going to obey God and not obey you. And you, you, you decide if you think um, that's right or not, that we should obey God rather than you. And they, the, the council's hands are tied. They just say, we'll see, because they're backed up into a corner. And so Peter and John are released. They go home to their friends, not just to the church at large, but to their very close circle of friends. And they continue, they rejoice that they're counted worthy of suffering persecution for the sake of the name of Jesus. And they pray asking for more boldness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, the Lord continues to give them boldness. So now we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 32. I'll start to read, um, and then you come uh, in and read as you feel led. Read a few verses and then let someone else read. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There were no persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at their apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Though Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of the Torah, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. A man named Pernas, with his wife, sold a piece of property and with his wife's house, he kept back some proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Pernas, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? property was yours to sell or not to sell as you wish. And after selling, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Every man was terrified. Then some young men wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. I don't know why I'm sorry. Oh, no, I don't. It's alright. It's alright. It's it's, it's just, he just fell down, and and then when it says, and everyone was terrified, you're like, well, yeah, of course they were terrified. I know. No, it's terrifying. Yeah, sure. Not knowing what had happened. Then Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. 
But Phoebus is right. How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Hark, to see that those who have been buried, who have buried your husband, are at God, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. <laughs> when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon <coughs> the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It certainly is. Let, you know, let's keep reading through to verse 16, just so that we get... Um, now, Lord, yeah. Now, Go for it. wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's court coach. None of the rest dared join me, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of the men and women. So that they even carried out the sick in the, in the streets and laid them on beds and pallets. But if Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all wow it's a sobering passage isn't it in the prior passage we saw opposition the first time this newborn baby church is recognized as a group of people is when um when the high high priests and the council arrest peter and john and put them on trial and persecute them they're flogged for what they've done which is nothing Um, they're flogged unjustly and sent back home so this persecution, we see opposition to the Lord's church, and who opposes the purposes of the Lord? The ruler of this world, right? Satan. And so you see this outward, um, this attack on the church from outside the church, this persecution. Um, now in this chapter, we see an attack on the church from inside the church, not an external opposition but an internal corruption of this newborn baby church. And um, even in the midst of this hardship, again, there's still this fellowship. There's great grace and power is what is said. And we're going to see the contrast between this radical generosity on the part of Barnabas and this holding back on the part of Ananias and Sapphira. And what is it that causes Ananias and Sapphira to hold back? Well, first of all, looking at Barnabas, this is the first mention that we get of Barnabas. He's a Levite. He is, so it's, uh, he's of a family associated with leadership among the people of Israel. He's somewhat wealthy. He owns a piece of property. He sells the piece of property. He's moved by the power of the Holy Spirit to participate in this fellowship, this koinonia, this generosity, and he takes his family's inheritance. I don't know what his mom thought about that. He takes his inheritance or his children. He takes it, he sells it, and he brings all of the proceeds from it, and he puts it at the apostles' disposal. And the implication is that he says, here, use this to minister to those who are in dire need, to those within our group who don't have enough to eat, to those who don't really have a place to live or clothes to wear, minister to their needs out of the surplus. This idea of um, he had more than others, and so he's giving out of that surplus. We talk, there's a um, great argument from 
Paul, and just if you wanted to do any little more looking at this, financial generosity, especially as we're in stewardship season. I've been reading from 2 Corinthians in my own private devotions, and I am just so struck by Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. And this is where that line about the Lord loves a cheerful giver comes from. But he's talking about this excess that the people in Corinth have, and he's asking them, he's begging them, and according to Paul's style, he is op- he's using every means possible to convince them to let their money flow freely, to give freely and joyfully so that those who are in very real need might have their needs met and alleviated. And so he says, um, he says about it, he quotes about the manna that was given to the people of Israel. He quotes and he says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is in 2 Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. And he says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. I'm not trying to encourage you to give so much that you would be in physical need like these people that currently are in physical need. I mean, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And he talks about this um, not storing up beyond day by day, by alluding to the manna principle that everyone had enough for that day when the Lord rained down manna upon the people of Israel. They were gathered up, and if someone gathered more than they needed, it turned to ash, it turned moldy, so they couldn't use it. Um, And if they hadn't been able to gather enough, maybe they were sick, and they could only gather what was right around them, their... um, their container for gathering the manna was full. It's an amazing miracle of provision for the Lord, provision for his people as they had need. And so Paul here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians is alluding to that, talking about generosity, urging the early church in Corinth to be generous. So we see that it's a principle throughout the early church, not just in the newborn baby church in Jerusalem, but Paul is arguing it for the Corinthian church and for us for all time. Um, But the question is what? So that's what it is. It's a generosity giving out of abundance towards those who are in severe lack. Um, But what he's saying is it's not, it is not, we're not looking at an early form of communism. Don't worry. That's not what I'm preaching and that's not what's here in the Bible. This is not this compulsion, compulsory shared property. What you see is that it's voluntary. Barnabas voluntarily sells his field and gives it generously. It's a voluntary giving. Um, And Calvin talks about this voluntary giving. He talks about this voluntary giving in a beautiful way. And I want to just read a couple of words from it because I think it's so beautiful. Um, He says, We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day are are content not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. They sold their possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. Sorry, I feel convicted about that. Retail therapy has taken its toll on my life. (laughs) I don't know about you. But that's, that's, it, it, it is very convicting to think about that and think about, well, do I spend my money on things that I need 
or am I spending my money on things that I really don't really don't need and that someone else could really use? And I th I try to I try to at least get rid of stuff. I the blessing of moving a lot is that um, that you end up having so much stuff that you just say I am not carrying this with me from Massachusetts to Birmingham. And now that I'm settled in Birmingham, I'm trying to get myself to, I was looking around my house today and I was like, I have so much stuff. I don't need this stuff. So I'm looking at trying to just get rid of some of the stuff that I know that someone else could really use um, that I don't need. Um, but that principle is there as well, just with, with the money. Okay, so Barnabas very publicly gives and he is commended for it. Um, there is this implicit commendation of Barnabas for it. He's a son of encouragement, and the Holy Spirit has moved his heart to be generous. Well, in contrast, Ananias and Sapphira, they appear to be as generous as Barnabas because they appear to be giving the full amount of what was sold. They are misrepresenting the sale, and they agreed beforehand together that they would put this public face forward that they would want all of their um, fellow believers to believe that they were more generous than they were. They wanted to have the reputation of Barnabas while still holding back the little something for themselves. And they're not being condemned for not sharing everything. It's the misrepresentation of what they're doing, the lying that they're being condemned for. Um, and, that, and, and also the fear um, when we hold back for ourselves, it is out of fear. I, you know, as one of four children, communal possessions was just kind of a given. <laughs> when you have two sisters, no one has their own set of clothes. If you're all, if you're all the same size, I mean, I would just, and it was, it caused me so much anxiety to look in my closet and, be, and say, I knew I had a shirt in here and I wanted to wear it and it's gone and I have no idea where it is, but I know that one of my sisters wore it and it's probably lying on her bedroom floor. You know, there was this great fear in me that if I didn't preserve what was mine for me so that just I could use it, I would never see it again, and then I would not be able to replace it with something that I really wanted. Uh, there was this fear that kept me from sharing with my sisters. Even, even in college when I had roommates who would ask to borrow clothes, I had this real resistance to it because I knew I would never see it again. So when I started to lend things out, um, the Lord freed me a little bit to be able to lend things out, but it was very pessimistically. I would just lend it out and say, yeah, sure, like, you can have it because I know I'm never going to see it again. But you, yeah, sure, you take it. Uh, <laughs> so it is fear that is causing Ananias and Sapphira to hold back um, maybe they're saving up for their retirement, which is a good, wise thing. We can't all be grasshoppers. Some people need to be ants. Um, they're holding back for themselves something, but it's fear-based, and it's that fear that causes them to lie. And that's why this attack is seen as being from Satan. Peter very boldly says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This lying is a part of disbelief, and it's a part of idolatry. Um, that uh, Ananias and Sapphira don't believe, first of all, that the Lord can care for them, and that the generosity that's happening within this body of believers would be extended to them if they were in need. They're not trusting in the Lord. They're not trusting in the Lord's work in the midst of his people. Um, they believe that, they, that um, God helps those who help themselves, right? That is their motto. 
God helps those who help themselves. Even if they want to believe something else and want to appear to believe something else, that is the lie that they're believing in their hearts. And that lying um, that we believe, the lies that we believe, hearken back to the Garden of Eden. Remember in Genesis 3 that the, sat- that the serpent, Satan, says to Eve, did God say? He's causing her to question. She's causing her to disbelieve the words of the Lord so that she might sin against the Lord and uh, disobey and do the one thing that the Lord had asked Adam, Adam and Eve not to do. That questioning, did God say, is God good? Will God take care of me? Um, Will God provide for me? Does he really love me? That questioning of God, questioning his character, questioning his sovereignty and his ability is something that we see further back in Scripture in the two precedents from the Old Testament. And I'm going to whip through these so that you'll get whiplash. Sorry. But I can. If you you want to do a work of super irrigation, I'm not even going to explain that term, but if you want to feel really holy, you can go back and look at your Old Testament passages. Or if you're really curious, it's really interesting to see. I'm going to read Joshua 7, 10 through 13. um, Joshua 7, 1, and then 7, 10 through 13. Because what happened here is that the people of Israel had come out of Egypt and they were about to enter, they, were, they had entered into the promised land. And Joshua, who's Moses' successor, had just led them to a great victory over Jericho. Remember the Battle of Jericho? They didn't even fight. They rounded about the city, rounded about the city, and the Lord told them to blow their trumpets. I mean, can you imagine try, the faith that it took to say, All right, God, this seems like not a really good way to fight a battle, but let's go ahead and blow our trumpets. And they blew their trumpets. And miraculously, the walls of the city fell down, and they were victorious. Well, what the Lord had said to the people of Israel when they were um, taking the promised land, when they were entering into the promised land, was that, um, that it was also a form of judgment for idolatry upon the peoples of that land because they didn't worship the Lord, because they were obeying other gods and worshiping other gods. And the Lord is so clear to his people Israel. He says, don't take their gods. And remember that their gods were not just seen as being spiritual entities, but they were represented by physical statues and figurines in images um, that were created that, by human beings, that were molded, um, pottery, pottery or ironwork, and that these figurines were seen to have power in them, and they were also uh, gold gold or silver, so they were precious. Um, They were a status symbol. They could buy you a good meal if you decided to sell them, right, or more than a good meal. And so what happens is that someone from the people of Israel is tempted to hold on to this gold, tempted to hold on to these things that were associated with pagan idolatry. And the Lord knows it. And this man has been secretive about it, but the Lord knows it, and he's going to bring it forward to Joshua's attention. And the way he brings it forward is that he allows his people, Israel, to be defeated in a battle. And they're saying, what? Lord, you said you'd protect us. Why have we uh, been defeated in this battle? We're really scared. Now we don't want to go do anything. And he says, well, um, they say in the narration, Joshua is saying, but the people of Israel broke faith, in regard to the devoted things, those are the things that were used in idolatrous worship by the people of the land. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took 
some of the devoted things. And when, it, when he's found out, this is what he says. He says, um, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. He says, darn it, hold on. Silence, silence, silence. Okay, in verse 20, I wrote the wrong verse down and set myself up. Okay, so in verse 20 of chapter 7, Achan tells Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. He had buried treasure in his tent that he had held back for his own use rather than giving it to the Lord for the use of the whole people. He had lied about it and he had coveted it. It was this idolatry, this need to provide for his own self and his own family that he took more than he really needed that he disobeyed the word of the Lord, that he lied about it. Um, and he's sitting on it. It's like he's sitting on this stash. And it's associated with idolatry, and it's associated with greed and fear. This also harkens back to Rachel. Rachel, Jacob's wife, um, when Jacob and Rachel and Leah are fleeing from Laban with all of the children, and they're going back to see Esau, which is scary, and they're all shaking in their boots, uh, awaiting to see Esau because Jacob made Esau really mad. They're leaving in the middle of the night, and Laban comes to, he tracks them down, and he chases them. And Laban is such a trickster. He is not a morally upstanding guy. We don't look at him and say, be like Laban. We kind of don't do that with Jacob either. He's a little bit of a trickster too. Family trait. And so um, Laban says, Jacob, why did you steal my children, my daughters, and my grandchildren? But more importantly, why did you steal my household gods? Oh, they're so loud, aren't they? Sorry. Um, so what, Rachel, what had happened was that someone had stolen those figurines used in idolatrous worship in Laban's house. Those um, worth, they were worth a lot of money. They were probably gold or silver or clay. They were precious metals. And they had, someone had stolen them. And Laban is more upset about that than about the daughters and the grandchildren, unfortunately. But he comes after Jacob, and Jacob says, We didn't steal them, and I tell you the truth, whoever, if anyone in my company has them, they shall die. And he pronounces this curse upon whoever stole these household gods of Laban. And who do you think stole them? Rachel. Do you remember the story? She's sitting on them. That could not have been comfortable. She sat on them in her saddle, and she said to her father, she lied to her father, can you just see her mocking him? My Lord, I can't get up. And she's saying, I can't get up because the way of women is with me. Lying. <laughs> so she's lying. She has stolen these gods. We don't know why she's stolen them. We don't know if she believes in these idols. We don't know if she's coveting the gold and the precious metals that we're, they're made out of, but it's not a noble act. She is not commended for it, and indeed the curse that Jacob has pronounced comes true just a couple of chapters later, and she dies in childbirth. But there she is sitting on these figurines 
for um, idolatrous worship. She's lied about them. She's coveted them. And it's almost like she buried them, right? Just like Achan. She's sitting on them. She's going to use them for herself and no one else can have them. So those are two biblical precedents leading up to Ananias and Sapphira. Does that, do you hear that? Does that, um, is that something that, can you see the parallels between Achan and Rachel and Ananias and Sapphira? It seems to me Laban is the one that should. I know, I know. Laban is really messed up. He was just awful. Well, you know, Mary Kay, we don't see him ever being part of the people of God. You don't see God's covenant purposes. He's not included in the covenant. It's kind of uh, once once he once he and Jacob part ways. Uh, they set up a pillar and they say, "I'm not going to cross this." this and you don't cross that and we're going to be at peace as best we can so he's we don't hear from him again so that's kind of a sign of what the Lord thinks of him anything else he was a jerk well he would have we all die right so any other thoughts before we look at why some of the whys and Jesus's thoughts well when we turn to look at what does Jesus have to say about money it is very sobering in the Sermon on the Mount, um, our Lord Jesus talks about money, and he talks... <laughs> I feel the same way when I hear them doing that. <laughs> Sorry about that. So Jesus is talking about money, and he's talking about not laying up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And then he goes on in verse 24 of chapter 6 to say, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot love God and money. I don't know what they're doing. Them. You don't throw those. I know it's dangerous. Well, I believe it. Well, we'll have to we'll have to send someone over to. We're, we only have five minutes. I think we can power through this week. But if we if we hear it at the beginning next week, will you remind me and say, No, Deborah, we really need to go over there and tell them to. Um, so looking at these. What's that? I know, I know. But they didn't they didn't listen to her. That's the problem is. They do. They do. Barbara's right. It's hard. And you can Okay, we're not going to get into this because I only have 5 more minutes left and I'd like to look at scripture. So when we look at now it's 4. Thank you Barbara. So looking at, um, looking at these two masters, Jesus is saying you can't serve God and money. And this word for money was this uh, idolatrous concept. You cannot have um, an idol in your life and worship God wholly. I think it was someone was saying we were talking about idol addiction, and someone's, which is this um, study about what are the idols in our lives, what are the things that we put before God, that we put in that number one slot in our heart, um, where we think about it all the time, where we, um, where our emotions are wildly attached to it, um, and I think about it. For me, it's what is what is gnawing at my gut. You know, when I lie down to go to sleep at night, what am I thinking about? 
and that's probably the thing I, I care most about. When I, when I was a child, um, I was an intelligent, thoughtful child, and um, I had the problem where when they, when they did fire safety in school, um, it was really bad because then I'd lay awake worrying what would happen if there was a fire in my house and dreaming up all of these different scenarios, and I would get paralyzed by fear, lying there in bed, imagining all the horrible things that could happen. If, um, if there was a fire, oh, then I'll grab the dog. And then I knew that as a good Christian, I should grab my Bible. So I was like, and I'll grab my Bible? But I was like, I'll grab the dog. And knew how to get out of the house. And so that fear, that obsession over my own safety and the safety of my family, that fear caused me to lie awake at night. So my question for you today is, what is it that causes you to lie awake at night? Because it might be that that's your real true master in your heart of hearts. And not, um, and not the Lord God. Whatever it is with Ananias and Sapphira, as with Achan and Rachel, it was the fear of not having enough for themselves that caused them to hold back and then to lie about holding back this money for themselves. And so um, they, had, um, they had lied and they were obeying the father of lies rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. Um, again, Peter's words are, um, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. The language about the Holy Spirit all along has been that the Holy Spirit fills the hearts of believers. And this is a difference with these two believers. Their hearts are filled by the father of lies. And so they lie, they misrepresent what um, they have. And just as James said in uh, James says in James 1 14 through 15 each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death it is so sobering to see this immediate judgment upon them for their lie and for their sin and their disbelief and this is one of the features of the early church. I don't think we need to worry that we're going to get struck by lightning today, but one of the things that the Lord is showing, it was a sign for the whole church that you cannot buy off God's people, um, that there is a purity that's brought about by the Holy Spirit, um, and that the Holy Spirit is in opposition to the lies of this world, and that the fear of the Lord, there's nothing in this life that can have more control over us or more power over us than God himself. And that was that the fear that I had about a fire happening in our household when I was growing up. It was a fear that didn't, um, didn't have anything to do with God. I didn't have faith in God because I didn't trust that God, who is gracious and good and all-sovereign, who has control over all things in creation, could protect my family from a fire. I was disbelieving in God's sovereignty and in his goodness. And so the fear of the Lord that's mentioned throughout the Bible and the fear of the Lord that is this characteristic right here is a fear that says God is great. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign over all. And I can trust that he will take care of me. I can trust that he will not send me something that I cannot bear without the strength of the Holy Spirit in me. I can trust that he who has been um, so gracious to me as to give to me Jesus Christ himself, um, that has forgiven my sins through Jesus' death, he has been so gracious to me in that I can trust that he will be generous to me 
in all the things that I need, the things for today, and not necessarily the things for next month or next year. Um, and so that fear of the Lord is really a trust that God is good and that he will provide. And it transcends all these other fears. So let's pray right now about these fears and about um, the fear of the Lord. So, Lord Jesus, we um, ask you right now, would you cast out from our hearts any fear that is not that holy fear of you, any um, tendency to trust in anything that is not you, any um, reliance upon mammon or any other idol that has wormed its way into the top place in our hearts. Lord, clean our hearts out, cleanse us from all the lies that we are tempted to believe, Um, clarify your truth Um, let your spirit dwell in us O Holy Spirit, spirit of truth guide us, lead us Lord preserve us, Um, show us the way to walk in and we will walk in us walk in it by the power of your Holy Spirit and um, especially Lord increase our faith in you we believe, help our unbelief Um, and so we ask this for your glory's sake in your name Lord Jesus Christ Amen